Well, good morning, church. Glad you're here this morning. And you know, if you, I love that song. It's one of my favorite songs because I don't know about you, but lately in my life, God has been challenging me. Pray some things in your life, Doug. It's only possible unless I step in. And I tell you, when we know that he's a way maker and we know that we can depend on him, he opens up doors like never before. Do you believe that? Say amen this morning. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 3 is where we're going to be today. Revelation chapter 3. Now, as we've been looking the last five weeks, today's the sixth week, we've been in a series called Seven, where we are looking at the seven churches in Asia Minor, the seven churches in the book of Revelation, and we've been kind of looking at them, and hopefully, as we've looked at them, we've been asking this kind of really important question, is this, as I look at this church and I see where they struggle, do I struggle in the same place? And so we started with the church of Ephesus, and the church of Ephesus is what we know as the drifting church, right? It's the church that kind of, they, they for, kind of began to forsake their first love, and they were doing a lot of right stuff, but they began to drift in their love for the Lord. Then we have the church of Smyrna, which is really kind of the, the fearful and the persecuted church. It was a church that was persecuted, but because of that, they had fear kind of creep up, and Jesus had to remind them, listen, I'm in this thing with you. There's no reason to fear. And then we have the church of Pergamum, which was the church that is the compromising church. It's the church that let outside influences dictate their own philosophies, their own worldview, and Jesus addresses them. And then we have the church of Thyatira, and this was known as the adulterous church. Now, if you remember this one, this is the church that had a Jezebel-type person in their congregation who they were giving a platform to propagate a message that was in opposition to God's word. And they were the adulterous church. And then last week we looked at the church of Sardis and they were the dead church, right? They were the church that once used to be alive, but they were living on their past reputation. But in the present, they were what? They were dead. And Jesus addresses them. Now today we're going to look at the next church, the church of Philadelphia. And this church is known as the healthy church. Aren't you glad we got to a healthy church finally, right? It's like all these other churches like, wow, but here's the thing about it. Come on. Here's the thing about it. When I look at these other five churches, I'm reminded I do resonate with them. There have been moments I've drifted in my love for the Lord. There have been moments I've let fear paralyze me. There have been moments I've let outside voices compromise me. There have been moments that I, I've let Jezebel-type people in my life and try to lead me the wrong way, and I've had to back up. There have been moments I've lived on my past closeness with the Lord, but in the present, I'm not as close as I ought to be. We've all resonated with these five churches. But then we have the Church of Philadelphia, the healthy church. Now, I want to read this passage to you. I want us to kind of go through it. And if you don't mind, I know you just sit down, but it's okay. I'm going to ask you to stand and honor reading God's word. And I want you to look at what Jesus says to the church of Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church in the Philadelphia, in verse 7, write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the keys of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open, I know your works. Behold, I set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word, and you've not denied, uh, not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you, because you have kept my word about patient endurance." I will keep from you the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast 
to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out and out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes from my God out of the heavens and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God bless the reading of his word. You may have a seat. Now, there's a lot of things that Jesus says to this church of Philadelphia. But like with every other church, it's important for us to know background because it gives us context to what Jesus is saying. So the church of Philadelphia, let's just talk about the city of Philadelphia out of the gate. The city of Philadelphia was founded in 189 BC, almost 200 years before the time of Christ. And it was founded by a guy by the name of Adelus Philadelphus. All right, so now we know what's Philadelphia. Adelus Philadelphus, which means brother lover or the lover of brethren, or we say it, the city of what? Brotherly love. So it's this idea of love that's going on there. Now, the city of Philadelphia, the church there actually was the youngest of all the seven churches in Asia Minor. It was the last one that was founded. Now, what's interesting about Philadelphia is its location. I don't know if you like maps and, and geography. I kind of do. I'm not very good at it, but I love that stuff. And one thing that's really fascinating about this church in Philadelphia is the location of Philadelphia. It was in the Hermas Valley. Now, that means there's mountain ranges around them, and this church is located in the valley. Now, the reason that's important is this. If you study this, the area of Philadelphia, here's what you're going to find out. This area was the number one trade route or trade depot of all of Asia Minor. That, you know, Ephesus was on a port, and so yes, they had a lot of trade, but Philadelphia was kind of an essential location where all trade routes in Asia Minor came through Philadelphia. And so it was massive in trade routes. Even though it wasn't a port city, people brought their stuff there and trade happened there. It was, it'd be like, you know, all roads that lead through Orlando and like right there in the valley, that's where we're at. And so that's the area of Philadelphia. It's in the valley of Hermas, the, Herman, the Hermas Valley, and it's there and it's, it's loaded with trade routes. In fact, it was known as the gateway to the east. Now I'm from Missouri and the arch in St. Louis is known as what? Anybody know? The gateway to the west, right? So in this area of Philadelphia, all these trade routes was a gateway to the east. And so this was a very, very popular city. And the reason the city was founded, listen, the reason they founded the city is because, because of all this trade, because this was the hub of all that was going on, they knew that they wanted, that the people that Philadelphus who founded this, he wanted Greek culture to permeate all of Asia Minor. And what better way to do that than to, to plant a city at the hub of the trade routes. And so as people come in and get stuff and they leave, they are influenced by Greek culture. They're influenced by Greek gods. And so as they go out, they eventually take that same ideology, that same culture, and they take it with them. And obviously the intent of this guy was the right intent because it came to fruition. By 1980, 19 years kind of later, almost 220 years later from being founded, what they planned to do actually took place. Greek culture had permeated almost all of Asia Minor. The Greek language was the predominant language in all of Asia Minor. So the city in this hub of trade was positioned there to influence the known world, so to speak, and ultimately it did. But here's what's also fascinating about the city of Philadelphia. Not only was it in the Hermas Valley, it was also surrounded by volcanoes. So if you're in a valley and a volcano erupts, where does the lava go? Not a trick question. Where does it go? 
in the valley. Now, I did not know this until I started studying this, but actually lava, when it kind of gets there and settles and everything goes away, it actually produces an extremely fertile soil. And so Philadelphia was known for soil that was extremely fertile, that could grow anything, and what they chose to grow there was vineyards and grapes. That's what they did. So, so Philadelphia was known for their wine. That's what they were known for. Now, if you know anything about Greek culture, because we've been talking about it, when you have a crop you're trying to raise, what do the Greek cultures also have? A god to oversee that, right? So they had the god of wine whose name was Dionysus. Now, here's my point. Philadelphia is the center of trade of Asia Minor, but it's also a place that's loaded with idolatry and the worship of Dionysus, the god of wine. Here's why that's important. It's that context that we have to look at the words of Jesus to this church in Philadelphia, this place of great influence, but also a place of great idolatry. And so let's look at the greeting that Jesus gives this church that's in the middle of this. Here's the greeting. He goes, and the angel of the church in the Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the keys of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. Now, Jesus addressed the church like this. He says, first of all, I'm the Holy One, I'm the true one, and I'm the one that has the keys of David. Now, let me just kind of pack that just for a minute. The Holy One, he's saying this. Listen, church, don't forget this. I am the one who's separate from sin. I'm the one who's pure. I'm the one who's flawless. I'm also the true one. I am the one and only true God, me and nobody else. And then when he said, I have the keys of David, keys were a picture, a symbolism of power and control. And you notice there he says, what I shut, no one will open. And what I open, nobody will shut. Here's what Jesus is saying is, I have final authority and I have final power. Now, why would he greet this church this way? Well, think about it. They're in a community that is surrounded by trade routes. They're inundated with Greek culture, Greek worship. Primarily the Greek worship in that city was the the God of Dionysus, the God of the wine. And so they're surrounded by all this. And Jesus gives them a greeting, just reminding them, while you're going through whatever you're going through, just know the God you're serving, the God you're living for, the God whose name you're elevating. Just know this, you got the right one. Because I am the Holy One, I'm the True One, and whether you believe it or not, or whether the people around you say it or not, I am in ultimate control, not them. Not their gods, it's me. So this would have been a great word of encouragement to this church in the middle of this. And then Jesus does what Jesus does in every other church. He offers some words to them. And so I kind of want to take some of the same things we've talked about in the past and apply it to the church of Philadelphia. He, talks, he gives them words of commendation. Look with me in verse 8 through 10. He gives them words where he commends them. He says this, I know your works. Behold, I have set you before an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have put little, I'm sorry, I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come down and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on this world, in this world. Now, here's what Jesus does. He commends them for several things. And there's really kind of four commendations he gives them. The first one is, he says, I know your works, right? Have we seen that phrase before? Yes. And it's the phrase of going, what things are invisible to man is not invisible to me. And so he says, I know your works. And he says, they have little power. And you say, okay, wait a minute. 
That's not really encouraging, is it? I mean, it's like, I'm like, you say, Doug, he's commending them for knowing what they're doing, but yet what they're doing has little impact. Well, that's not what Jesus is saying at all. And we know that as you read the rest of the passage. Here's what Jesus is alluding to. It's this. It's like, I know your works. And this little power is really a reference. If you chase those words and track it through the passage, what you'll find out, little power is a reference to the size of the church. And so he commends them in basically saying this, I know your works and which have little power. Now, the works don't have little power, but you have little power, meaning your church that is not that big. But despite your small size, you're making great impact in your community. Despite your small size, you are a spiritual powerhouse. So Jesus really commending him. I know you say, well, little power, that doesn't make sense. He's not referring to their impact. He's referring to their size. So when you looked at the church of Philadelphia, you saw a church that didn't have that many people, didn't seem to be all that powerful. But Jesus says, I know your works. And while they may be thinking this, you are a church that's making great, significant strides for the kingdom. So he commends them for that. Then he commends them, he says, for keeping my word. He says, I want to commend you for keeping my word. Now, in other words, this church, evidence, one of the evidences of their love for the Lord was their obedience to his word. They had kept his word. They obeyed his word. And that was one of the evidence that this church loved the Lord. Do you think that's an evidence for us that we love the Lord by our obedience to his word? Sure it is. You know why I know that? Because Jesus said it. If you love me, keep my what? Commandments. If you love me, keep my word. If you love me, obey. And so here's a church that Jesus commends because while they are small, they're making a massive impact, and he commends them because they are keeping his word. They have chosen not to deviate from the truth of God's word. They are staying faithful to the word, and he commends them for that. He also commends them. He says, you have not denied my name. Now, you can imagine in a culture in a culture where there is idolatry, in a culture where all the trade routes come, where Greek culture has, has, has totally taken over everything, you can imagine they must have been under some pressure to compromise. They must have been on some pressure to give in. They must have been on some pressure sometimes just to look the other way. You know what? They want, they, people probably pressure them. You need to be a church that's culturally relevant. So just look the other way. Don't get too mad when we go worship the God of wine because everybody's getting hammered. Don't worry about that too much. I mean, they're there must have been an incredible amount of pressure for them to compromise. However, this church stayed loyal. This church is commended that when they had pressure to deny the name of Christ, they didn't deny the name of Christ. They probably elevated the name of Christ. Somewhere in this church's DNA, they decided we would rather die for the name of Christ than deny the name of Christ. And that's who they were. And Jesus commends them for that. And then he commends them, finally, the last commendation he gives them, he says, because you've kept my word about patient endurance. In other words, you've kept my command to endure patiently, and you followed the model I've left you. That's what he's saying. He said, listen, I want to commend you because you've kept my word about patient endurance. You followed my command. My command to live patient and to endure all that's going on with you, you've done that. Your church that is held up well under pressure. You've never given in. You've never given up. But you've also, you followed my model. Now, let's be honest. Isn't Jesus the best model for patient endurance? Come on. Isn't he the best model? Because if you were Jesus and you had the 12 knucklehead disciples he had, would you have given up on them a long time ago? Yes, you would have. But did Jesus? No. He loved them. 
He cared for him. Listen, even the night of his greatest betrayal, he exhibited and expressed love to even Judas, the one who would betray him. So he says, listen, not only have you kept my command, but you have modeled and followed the example that I've given you to be patient and to endure. And because, you know, it's basically he's commending them for that activity. And so Jesus starts off with this commendation. Now, what I love about these commendations is this, is that if you look at how he commended them, it's basically he's commending them for things that these other churches were terrible at, right? He's commending them for things the other churches struggle with. So he's like, you know, listen, I want to commend you because while you're small, man, you're making great impact. While you're, while you're filled with pressure around you, you're staying faithful to my word. While you have pressure around you, you're not denying my name. You're staying loyal to me. And ultimately, you are enduring patiently. Jesus has great words of commendation for them. And then there's the second thing I want you to notice, and it's this. It's his words of comfort. Now, before I read this, I, wanna, I want you to understand something with me. This is the only church that Jesus offers words of comfort. See, every other church, if you go back that we've talked about, every other church, here's the, here's the rhythm we followed. Jesus commends them, right? And then he lays out his concern. In other words, you hear, you hear a phrase like this, this is what you've done well, but I hold this against you. You remember that phrase? And so every other church we've heard that, this is the only church that Jesus has no concern about. The only church that Jesus doesn't lay out for them, here's what I hold against you. So rather than issuing a concern for them, he offers them words of comfort. So Doug, are you saying that this is a healthy church who's making a difference, who's staying faithful, who's staying loyal, who's enduring and making one big impact? Yes is the answer to the question. Yes, they are. Now, why is that important for us today? Because we can look at the church as a whole, as a country, and the church of America, the church, our cross-life church, and we can look at the church, and sometimes we can get disenfranchised. We can see all the things wrong with what's going on. And do we need to address the sin? Do we need to address things that need to be dealt with? Absolutely. But here's a church that reminds us that we can live for the Lord. There can be a church that can be healthy, growing, and vibrant that's making a difference, and it should be motivation for us. So Jesus offers them words of comfort. Now listen to his comforting words. Look at me in verse 8 again. He says this, I set before you a, an open door which no one is able to shut. Now he says, listen, I'm going to put before you an open door and nobody's going to be able to shut it. Now, why is that words of comfort? Because these are words of opportunity and security. When Jesus says that to them, here's what he's saying. I'm the one who presents opportunities. I'm the one who opens the door for people to receive the gospel. I'm the one who opens the door for my people to share their faith. I'm the one who orchestrates all that. And no matter what the enemy tells you, nobody can stifle what I'm doing. If I open it, the enemy sure can't shut it. Because why? I'm all-powerful. I'm all-knowing. I have all control. So he's, off, he's telling them these words of comfort that I'm open this door for you, that I, that I set before you an open door saying, listen, you have opportunity, opportunity to receive the gospel and opportunity to share the gospel with other people. And the enemy can't stifle that. But he also says, no one to open a door, he said, but no one can shut the door. It's this idea of security, that what I set things into motion, the enemy can't derail. Do you believe that this morning? That when God sets things into motion, that the enemy can do all he can to attack us, all he can to come after us, but God is ultimately going to carry out his plan, his will, his way. He's going to do it. 
And so these are words of comfort. So listen, a church that's struggling, a church that's in the face of compromise, a church that's wrestling with all the stuff around them, he is just simply reminding them, listen, I'm going to provide you opportunity. And nothing going on around you is going to stifle it. Why? Because I'm in control. I got this. Just keep trusting me. And then another word of comfort comes in verse 9. He says this, in verse 9, he says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not lie, but behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, there's a lot there, but basically here's what Jesus is saying. It's those that are pretenders, those that are in your community, those that are saying, yes, they're followers of Jesus, yes, they're members of the Church of Philadelphia, but they're not, they're really, they don't necessarily, synagogue of Satan doesn't mean they worship Satan, but they're sure living a life like the devil. They don't live a life that reflects Christ. He says, those people, guess what? I will hold them accountable. They will be humbled, and they will be defeated. Now, why is that comforting to them? Because Jesus is reminding them that no matter what comes your way, no matter what people throw at you, the people that are saying they're a part of you. Listen, if people said they were a part of Cross Life East, and they go out to eat lunch today, and they cuss out their waitress, are they a great representation of our church? No. Terrible representation, right? And he's saying, listen, there's those in the community of Philadelphia who say they're among you, but I know the truth. I know they're lying. I know they're not. But listen, don't worry about them. I know you're afraid that they're going to have a negative impact on you, but don't worry about them. Why? Because I'm going to humble them. I am going to hold them accountable. And this would have been great words of comfort to this church. It's not just the outside forces coming at them, but there's people who's claiming to be among them who aren't, who's leaving a bad reputation and defaming the name of Christ. And Jesus says, listen, I'm the one that's going to hold them accountable. I'm going to bring justice to your enemies. And then he gives a third word of encouragement or comfort here. He says this in verse 10. He says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on earth. Now listen, this is a really famous passage of Scripture. Because if you notice here, let's just leave it up if we can. He says, I, he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. Well, what's he talking about? He's talking about the seven years of tribulation that's coming. Because if you think about it, in this passage, in this verse, he talks about a trial that's coming that has a specific time period, hour of trial, a trial that's going to reveal the hearts of men, and a trial that's going to come that's going to impact the entire what? World. Everybody. And so for many people, what, what Jesus is telling the church of Philadelphia is that because you've stayed steadfast, because you've, you've done all that I've asked you to do, I'm going to make sure that in that moment when that trial comes, when my wrath begins to be poured out, I'm going to rescue my church beforehand. Now this is where many theologians will look to what we call the pre-tribulation rapture. It's this verse they lean to. Meaning that before God brings the wrath of himself on this world, that Jesus' promise is going to be ultimately held true then when he's going to take his church out before the tribulation happens. So he offers these words of encouragement to them and basically these words of comfort. And here's what Jesus is trying to comfort them with. Don't miss this. He's saying, listen, I'm the one who provides opportunity and nobody's going to stifle it. I'm the one who's going to hold those who are pretenders accountable. Don't worry about it. And ultimately, when I get ready to pour my wrath out, guess what? I'm going to rescue my church. And this would have been great words of comfort to the church of Philadelphia. And that leads me to the third thing I want you to notice. And it's his words of command. He gives them words of command. Look at me in verse 11. 
He says this, I am coming soon. Now just pause there. And I know I'm going to ask a question and you go, yes. And then I'm going to follow it up with, really? Do we believe that Jesus is coming soon? I know some of us will go, yeah, well, you know, in light of the world we see, a lot of the hate that's going on, a lot of all that's going on, we think Jesus could split heaven open at any moment. And you're right, absolutely. But you talk to people like my mom, who was born in 1942, she would tell you that sometimes in the late 50s, early 60s, they thought, thought the same thing. And the reason I'm asking the question is this, because how we feel about the coming of Christ is a great determination of how we're going to live this life. If we know that Jesus is coming at some point, but we're just not sure it's going to happen sometime before 10 o'clock, you know, we're just going to continue to live our way that we do. And Jesus is trying to invest in this church this truth. Listen, I am coming soon. Now, I know what you're thinking, because some of you are way smarter than I am. Coming soon, written over 2,000 years ago, that's not very soon, is it? But you have to remember, God exists beyond time and space. God is above all things. So for God... 4,000 years might be a blink of an eye, right? He says, I'm coming soon. And basically, here's what Jesus is trying to illustrate to them before we continue to read. I want you to interpret and to read and hear everything I'm about to say through the lens that at any moment I could come. There needs to be an urgency about you like never before. So here's what he says, verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. He says, because I'm coming soon, here's what I want you to do. Hold fast, church. Hold fast. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Cling to the right things, right? He says, I want you to hold fast. In other words, you guys have been doing a great job. You guys have been small, but great impact. You've kept my word. You've not denied my name. I mean, you are just making a great, amazing difference for me. I mean, you're making such an impact. Keep doing what you're doing. Hold fast to what you have. Keep sharing your faith. Keep depending on me. Keep being faithful to me. Stay at it. Now, why would Jesus challenge him with that? Because isn't it easy when we get discouraged to sometimes become careless in our passion and in our urgency? Isn't it sometimes easy when we get discouraged to kind of fall into some carnality? And he's challenging them to hold fast to not become careless, to not give into carnality, but to keep doing what they're doing because they're doing a great job. And then he says, keep doing it so that no one may come and steal your crown. Now, there's a lot of imagery in the book of Revelation, and I don't want us to get so bogged down in all the symbolism, but basically the crown here is not the crown of life. He's not talking about their salvation. He's talking about reward here. He's talking about so no one can come and take your reward. Now, what is the point of what Jesus is saying? It's this. I want you as a church to finish strong. Because you've been so faithful, you're going to receive so many rewards in heaven. Don't stop. Don't let anybody come and, and cause you to stop. Don't give in to carnality. Don't become careless, therefore kind of forfeiting some of the rewards that could be yours. I want you to finish strong. I don't know about you, but I, as I get older, I'm 47 now, and I know that's not old. And, you know, I'm, I, but as I get older, there's one thing that begins to resonate in my heart is that when I get close to the end of my life, whenever that is, it could be right now, I don't know. I want to finish strong. Don't you? I want to finish strong. We should never have the mentality, well, you know, I'll wait till I hit 70. Because at 70, you know, based on my family history, then, then I'll finish. No, 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 no. We need to have a mindset that Jesus could come at any moment. He could come before you take your next breath. And we need to be committed to finish strong. Hold fast, he says. 
Hold fast. Keep loving me. Keep sharing your faith. Keep depending on me. Don't stop doing what you're doing. And then he offers them one more word. It's a word kind of a promise here. It's in verse 12 as we close. He says this. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out. And I will write on him the name of God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Now listen, there's just a lot of imagery there, and I'm not going to get into all that. But here's what I want to say. A pillar is something that stands up and stands out, right? And he's commending them, saying, you know, as you stand up and stand on this world, you're also going to stand up and stand out in eternity. I'm going to honor you. It's basically a phrase of honoring. And then when he talks about writing his name, that he basically he's talking about ownership there, that we're going to let all the world know that you belong to him. And so there's a beautiful imagery there. But here's why Jesus gives them this promise. Have you noticed with every church Jesus has offered a promise to them? Why would he do that? Because he wanted to provide a means of motivation. He wanted to remind them that while you're on this earth and all this pressure's come on, I don't know about you, but when I go through things in life and I feel all the pressure on me, sometimes I lose sight of eternity, don't you? Sometimes I lose sight of eternal difference, eternal significance. Sometimes when all the pressures of the world are weighing on me, I lose sight of eternal things. That's why Colossians, Paul says, set our mind on things above, right? That we are to be eternally minded. And sometimes when pressures come, I lose that. So Jesus is offering this promise to them to remind them, hey, I want to provide some motivation because there's going to come times you're going to be discouraged. But remember that if you keep living faithful, if you keep doing what you're called to do, man, you're going to experience reward that's going to blow your mind when you get to heaven. So when you look at the church of Philadelphia, there's some takeaways I think we all need to have. Let me give you a couple, then there's a question I want us to ask. Here's the first takeaway, and it's simple, and it's this. It's that we see that through the church of Philadelphia, we see what faithfulness really looks like. We really see what faithfulness looks like. You know what it looks like? It looks like keeping his word, committing not to deny his name, but to make his name known. And it really means this idea of being faithful also means being willing to patiently endure no matter what comes our way. That's something we need to walk away with. Another thing we need to walk away with, another takeaway for us, is that we see the beauty of knowing, the comfort of knowing that Jesus is ultimately in control. That it's Jesus who provides opportunities for us. It's Jesus who provides opportunities for those that come to faith in him. That Jesus is the one who provides opportunities, and nothing's going to stifle that. And then for those that act like they're part of the body of Christ, but aren't Jesus going to hold them accountable? We don't have to. He's going to. And ultimately, we can take joy and comfort in his words, knowing that one day when he does bring this tribulation in the world, that he is going to take his church out because he loves us. So here's the question I think we have to ask this morning. It's this. Are we holding fast? Are we holding fast? Are we actively living with an urgency like Jesus could come back at any moment? Are we actively living a life where we are sharing our faith every opportunity we get? Are we actively depending on the Lord for everything? Are we holding fast? And if you are as a believer, we're honest today and say, well, Doug, I'm not, then here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Would you ask the Lord just to birth something in you this morning? That he would birth an urgency for you to live for him. That he would birth in you an urgency to share your faith with your, maybe your spouse or your coworkers or your friends or your family members. That he would birth that passion in you to do that. And that he would birth a passion in you to absolutely not give in to carnality or give in to and just kind of be careless, but to live for him. 
If you're struggling with that, would you just ask him to birth that in you? And then, you know, as we read these passages, one thing I'm always reminded of is this, is that in every one of these church letters, we see this sense of eternity, don't we? Eternal things. And I think for everybody, you know, and maybe everybody in this room are believers, and maybe you are, and that's wonderful. But maybe you're going to encounter somebody today at lunch that's not, and they need to be able to wrestle with this question. Do they know where they're going to spend eternity? Because so much of what we learn in the book of Revelation is that we need to be minded about things that are coming. We need to know beyond a shadow of a doubt where we're going to spend eternity. And you may have a friend that doesn't know that, and are you willing to go share that with them? And maybe you're here this morning, you're like, I don't know where I'm going to spend eternity. Well, you can know it. You can, not, you can leave this place today knowing that you're going to spend forever with him in heaven. Just by simply saying, I know that I'm a sinner, and ask you to be the Lord and Savior of my life. Forgive me my sins, and come be the boss and master of my life. If you will do that, in that moment, you'll be a child of the Most High God. So I'm just asking you this morning, wherever you find yourself, whatever you might be struggling with, if you say, Doug, I am not holding fast today, would you ask God to birth an urgency in you to share your faith and to depend on him? Let's all stand together as we pray. Everybody stand with me if you would. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I just want you to pray with me this morning. Lord, I thank you for today. I thank you for the church of Philadelphia. Honestly, Lord, as we've gone through the other five churches, in some ways it's almost discouraging because like Ephesus, we see a church doing great stuff and we look at them going, I want to be doing those kind of great things, but yet that which was most essential and most important, they had forsaken. And we don't want to be like that. Or we look at a church of like, of a, like Smyrna that's doing some really good stuff and facing persecution, but fear has paralyzed them. We don't want to be like that. So God, I pray for us as, a, as Cross Life East and as, as followers of Jesus Christ, Lord, that we would look at the church of Philadelphia and we would see a church that was healthy, a church that while they were small was making massive impact, a church that was depending on your word, a church that was keeping your word and they, they were leaning on you, trusting you, and that we would be inspired by that. And as you commanded this church to hold fast, that we would ask ourselves this question, are we holding fast? Is there urgency in our life to live it for you? Is there an urgency to share our faith? Is there an urgency to depend on you in everything? And Lord, if there's not, may in this very moment, may you birth that urgency in our hearts. May we simply just acknowledge it before you. And may we ask you to give us that urgency because Lord, we know that at any moment, you can come again. And may we live our life in light of that. So God, just be with us today. May we just be faithful to respond however you're going to lead us today. For it's in your precious and your holy son's name we pray. Amen.